All right, uh, we're back in the book of Luke. So Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, as we make our slow march to chapter 24. Um, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 34 this morning. Maybe imagine yourself this morning as we kind of lead into the passage, thinking about yourself as a, as a, someone who works on the, the cleaning staff of a, a large office or corporation, and you clean the offices. And imagine maybe you see this, this corner office, you know, way up in a skyscraper, and you think, wow, you know, one day I want to be at the corner office. I want to be in this place of, of, of greatness. Um, but, but you're on the cleaning staff. And so the only way to get to the corner office, you, you can't go from cleaning staff to corner office, right? I mean, you've got to start where you're at. And you work from there, and you go to the warehouse, and then maybe you, know, you get a job filing things or being a runner or making copies. And slowly you work your way up through this company, and, and maybe someday you might get to the, the corner office, this beautiful place where you have achieved some level of greatness. But to get there, you've got to go through all of the other things. You've got to slog through the menial labor and, and the difficulty. Or maybe do a different illustration. Maybe that means nothing to you. Maybe you are an outdoors type person. Imagine yourself on the on a on a mountain and you see a peak in front of you. You're on one side of the mountain and, and you want to get to this peak. That's that's where camp is at. That's the, the, the place that you want to get to. And you'd love to have like a zip line that went upwards, you know, and just took you there, or some sort of gondola that went that way. But the only way to get there is to go down down into the valley that's between these mountains, and you have to go down through that valley, and then you can get up to this, this peak, to this peak of, of, of greatness where you're exalted. Now, I share those two illustrations because I think that what Jesus is going to teach us and his, what he was teaching his disciples is, is this truth, and I'll put it this way, that the, the path to the peaks of greatness, let's call them, the path to the peaks of greatness always leads through the valley of humility. The path to the peaks of greatness always leads to the valley of humility. If you want to get to that place of greatness and exaltation and and blessing, it's going to take going through humility, and we may even say humiliation. We all have this desire for greatness, a desire for some sort of exaltation. It's in our hearts, and sin takes that and and twists that desire and turns it into pride. It turns it into selfishness and self-exaltation, but there. There's a path to greatness. There's a path to, to glory that brings joy to our hearts and brings glory to God as the, the source and the goal of that. There's, we can have that desire and God can, can use it. And as we think about this, we're going to find that this is not the first time that Jesus has talked about what true greatness is. Um, but, of course, we all need to be reminded of that, don't we? Um, so we're going to, today is a, is a good day. It's a good day to be reminded that, that we need to be humble. It's a good day to be reminded that uh, greatness in the kingdom of God comes through serving others. It's a good day to be reminded that we need to have faith. So let's read Luke 22. Uh, we'll start in verse 24. I, I think we would say that this section probably extends to verse um, 38. It's sort of in Luke. These, this is the teaching that happens in the upper room in verse 39. They have to the Mount of Olives. But we're just going to go through verse 34 and we'll pick up at 35 next time but let's read luke 22 and i'll start in verse 24 it says a dispute also arose among them which would be the disciples 
as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the great? Who, who is the greater one? I'm sorry, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So, when we were with the disciples last, you remember that they were um, they were in the upper room, and Jesus had taken the Passover meal, the symbolism that spoke of the deliverance from Egypt, and he transformed it. You remember, he's talking about the salvation that that comes that that's going to come from his quickly approaching death. And immediately after that, he tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray them, and. And while we know that it's Judas, it's obvious in, in verses in, um, in verse 22, 23 that, that they don't know that. Interesting to think about. We assume that Judas must have been sneaky and obvious. But those that knew him best had no clue that he was going to betray Jesus. Just a good reminder of the deceptive nature of our hearts, isn't it? We can fool everyone, can't we? Sometimes. And so the disciples are discussing who it's going to be that will betray Jesus. It would seem that that discussion then sort of leads into this dispute about who is the greatest. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but in my mind's eye, maybe it began with one of them saying something like, well, I certainly am not going to betray him. I'm, you know, probably one of the greatest disciples here. And someone said, you? I, I mean, I'm probably, I think I'm probably the greatest disciple. And so the, the dispute goes about who's going to betray him to who could never betray him because they are the greatest. Let's look at this and we'll call this, this section from 24 to 27. Let's just call it the present dispute. So it's what happens in the present. There's this dispute that happens and the argument you'll notice it centers on greatness. Who was to be regarded or thought of as the greatest, as the, the most exalted. In fact, this is not the first time that the disciples have argued about this, is it? As you read through the Gospels, they argue about this often, and it usually happens within the context of Jesus talking about his coming death and, and his, his arrest and all of, the, all of the, the betrayal and everything that's going to happen, which is, always seems so out of place, but especially here. How could the disciples pridefully argue about their own exaltation and their own greatness when Jesus has just talked about his his broken body and his, his shed blood that's being given for them. 
How could they think of their own exaltation when their master has just talked about his complete humiliation that's going to come? I think it's because, you know, after so much time with Jesus, they are still thinking in worldly and natural ways about what greatness is. And and that's how we think, too. We've heard the teaching of Jesus over and over again, but we still think about greatness in terms of the the way that the world thinks about it or the way that we're just naturally inclined to think about who's the greatest. And so Jesus responds to their argument by actually talking about these worldly understandings of greatness and these just sort of natural, sinful understandings of what greatness is. In verse 25, he just reveals a, a worldly perspective on greatness. So we'll think about that first, this worldly perspective. It's the worldly perspective of the Gentiles where people tie greatness to authority and control. That's who's the greatest. The Gentiles would gain power, and then they would use that power. And when they used that power, they expected people to recognize how great they were. They they wanted to be called benefactors, those who had contributed things to society. And and they wanted that the the power that they had and the power that they wanted to be acknowledged by everyone else. They wanted to be distinguished above everyone else. They wanted to walk down the street, and when they did so, it should be clear that they are something special, that they're a cut above everyone else. They are great. That's a worldly perspective. It's closely related to a natural perspective, just sort of the way we naturally think about greatness. Jesus talks about that in in verse 27. He, He asks a question. Who's greater, the one who sits at the table and is served by others, or the people that are serving? He answers his own question. He says, it's, it's the one who sits and is served, right? Doesn't that make sense? Maybe you've been to a, a banquet where people pour your drinks and deliver your food to you and then clear your plate for you. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to feel greater, better than that person that is serving you. You feel like someone special as you sit at that table and you're, you're waited on. That just is how we think about things. Or the perspective of the world around us and of our natural sinful hearts is that, that greatness is determined by the people who wield authority, people who have power, people who are served by other people. Those are the ones that are the greatest. The greatest are the ones that are, you know, if you go to a play, they're the ones that are listed on the back of the playbill as major contributors to this theater. That's the greatest. The greatest are those who who get awards for serving the community, who have medals and trophies and things like that. The greatest are are those who sit in places of honor, who are served by other people. They are the ones that have car doors open for them, you know, and red carpets for them to, to walk on. The greatest are the people that are praised and served by everyone else. That's who the greatest are. Isn't that what we want? Oh, man, we want that, don't we? I mean, I, I know that's in my heart. You watch all of these um, shows, the contests, you know, if you've got talent or you can sing or, you you know, you can get some sort of contract and be the biggest, next biggest thing. That's what we want. We want to be exalted. And so before we point our fingers at the disciples and say they're such prideful, selfish jerks, let's realize that, you know, we think about greatness just like they did, don't we? that we are prideful, selfish jerks too, (laughs) that we rob God's glory at times, we hoard it for ourselves, we want recognition, we want to be served, we think that these things are going to make us great. They're going to make us great in this life and maybe even in the life to come, that that's what true greatness is. 
That's our worldly perspective, our natural perspective. But Jesus comes in and what's he give us? He gives us the kingdom perspective. He gives us this contrast of the kingdom perspective. Verses 26 and 27 both have contrast. You see verse 26, but not so with you. And then in verse 27 in the middle, but I am among you. So there are these, these, these contrasts. He says, not so with you. You guys are not like everyone else if you're my followers. The greatest among you will not be the one who exercises authority and is publicly recognized for it. The greatest among you will become like the least, he says, like the youngest. The youngest in that culture, so the youngest person was obligated, was required to perform the lowliest service for everyone that was older than them. That may sound good to those of you that like are an older sibling, right? Don't get any ideas. Um, Jesus says that, that the greatest will think of him or herself as what? As the youngest. As the one that should perform the lowest task. The greatest person, Jesus says, is the one who considers himself or herself to not be the greatest. And leaders, what's to say about leaders? Leaders are to be the ones who serve. Leaders are to be those who serve. The leader does not recline at the table. He serves the other people at the table. Now, having said this, Jesus holds himself up as an example. He says, I am among you as the one who serves. What's Matthew 20, 28 say? This great verse, he says, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the truth he's just shown here at the Lord's Supper. I think it's good to pause at that moment. Let's, let's just pause for a second here. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is not saying here is serve others and humble yourself so that you can earn salvation. That's not what he's saying here. Rather, Jesus is the only one that has ever fulfilled this call to service and to humility completely he's the only one that's ever done it and his perfect life his submission led him to the cross where he dies as a ransom for us where he saves us from the penalty of our of our pride and of our self-exaltation his his death was for my sin it was for your sin it was for our self-centeredness it was for our pride it was for the way that we look down on other people it was for our desire to be exalted above everyone else and the penalty for that sin and every other sin is death and so jesus comes not telling us to try harder but to trust in him and to recognize that he has paid the ransom that he has paid the penalty for our sins that he has died on the cross and risen to give us new life he calls us to confess our sins he calls us to believe in him and then, and when we are adopted into his family, when we become children of God, we want to be like him. We want to follow him into humility and into service. That's what Jesus leads us in. From the book of John, so this is in the high, this is in the upper room. And we know from the book of John that Jesus didn't just say these words, but he modeled them, that he showed it. What's he do in, in John 13? He becomes as the youngest. He, he washes the disciples' feet. He takes on the task that would have been for the youngest. Someone else should have been doing it. But he showed that he is the one who serves. The disciples stay at this table. Jesus comes 
and washes their feet. You know, if you and I walked into the upper room as Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, there's no way that we would think he's the greatest. There's no way that we would think that, that he was the master. We would assume this guy must be the servant. He's got the basin. He's got the towel. He must at least be the youngest that he's required to do this. But in fact, he was the greatest one there. The greatest of them all. He was the leader. Philippians, it reminds us that Jesus came, that he humbled himself to become a man. But not just to become a man, but he took on the form of what? A servant. He served others. And then he went even lower. He became obedient to death. He was willing to die. Not just die though, right? To die a humiliating death on the cross. He goes through that valley of humiliation. And then what what does Paul say in Philippians? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The path to greatness always leads to this valley of humiliation. And Jesus shows us that. So what's our perspective this morning on greatness? Do we think like the world about greatness? That greatness is is having power, being recognized for having power? Do we think like we're naturally prone to do? That, That everyone else should serve me? That people serving me, that's what greatness is? Or do we have the the perspective of the kingdom of of Jesus? This kingdom where greatness is found in laying aside your rights. Laying aside this desire to be served and rather being filled with the desire to serve others. It's a kingdom where, where recognition by the Father is all that we need, even if no one else sees us. I was thinking about how this applies and I thought about kids. Children, maybe you want to follow Jesus. Isn't this a great way, this, this call of Jesus on our lives to serve others? So kids, are you, are you selfish or do you serve others? Are your, is your mouth filled with things like, that's mine or it's my turn or, but I want that? Or are they filled with, let's share, or, you can go first or let's do what you want to do? That's not just being nice, that's being like Christ. And if we want to follow Christ, then that's, what our mouths are filled with. Well, for all of us though, right? It's not just kids. For all of us, do we do we seek to do the things that no one else wants to do? Do, do we want to do the things that we really don't want to do? Do we do those things? Do we seek to do the things that we naturally think are below us? That we think about that and we think, ah, that's for someone else to do. Are we willing to, to serve others and to do things when no one else will know about it except for God? Do we consider ourselves better than others? Or do we look for opportunities to serve anyone and everyone that we can? Do I serve my spouse, my children, my parents? Do I serve my coworkers and my neighbors? Do I serve the waiter at the restaurant? Do I serve my fellow drivers on the road after you? <laughs> Or do we go through life thinking that we should be served, that we are the greatest, that we're better than everyone else, and therefore we're the ones that should go first? You know, I had a bad attitude cooking dinner last night. I didn't want to do it. I wanted someone else to do it. I wanted Andrea to do it. But it didn't work. It was not the way things that, uh, you know, with, with five kids, you do what you got to do, and there's things that, uh, that fall to you. And so in the midst of my bad attitude, you know what happened? God sort of smacked me on the forehead with the passage that I was going to preach. <laughs> Isn't that how it usually works? And I thought, you know what? This is, this is an opportunity. 
I didn't respond perfectly, I'll be totally honest. But God was teaching me in that moment, this is an opportunity to humble yourself and to serve. Why do you think that you should be the one that is that is served? That's the battle every day, isn't it? To, we just, I want to be in charge. I want everyone to serve me. I want to be thought of as great. I'd rather sit on the couch and have everyone take care of me. But no, our, our role is to serve. And in doing that, we follow Jesus. You know, I think there's a special word here too for those of us that, are either in leadership in the church or desire to be leaders in the church, whether this church or some future ministry. We need to hear this, don't we? What's he say about leaders? He says it there. The leader is the one who serves. You know, our hope for greatness in ministry should not be in, in preaching at big conferences or selling, you know, writing a best-selling book or pastoring some mega church but rather it should be in in humbly serving others what does it look like to be a pastor to be a leader in the church it's it's praying with those that are sick it's serving the outcast and being faithful in small unnoticed things that's that's what being a minister being a pastor being a servant of god looks like so jesus calls us to find greatness and exaltation through the valley of humility, through the valley of service to others. So hear these words. These are the words of Jesus in John 13, right after he washes the disciples' feet. And hear them to each of our hearts, okay? This is Jesus applying his words to us. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them and he says to us, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sends him. If you know these things, and we do now, blessed are you if you do them. If we want to be great, if we want to be exalted, if we want to know the blessings of God, then we will serve others the path to exaltation always leads through humiliation every time so if if you're in christ maybe your response now is is to say yes i'm going to do that i mean i'm going to serve christ i'm going to serve others any way i can jesus i'm ready to go to prison for you i'm ready to die for you sounds like someone else doesn't it you know what peter says here In response to all this, he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And what does Jesus say? You're going to deny me three times before this day is over. So let's think about our potential for denial. (laughs) Our potential for denial. Jesus turns to Peter in the midst of this teaching. There's there's no break in the teaching, is there? It's all one um, section. He says, Simon, Simon. He calls Peter by his former name. Almost sort of a, a prophecy of how unrock-like, un-Peter-like Peter is about to be. But he calls him with affection. He calls him with love. He tells Peter that for sure, this day, before it's over, you will deny three times that you even know me. You will forsake me. You will renounce the fact that you are one of my followers. Now let that shock you for a minute, right? I mean, this is... This is Peter. And Peter was a little impetuous, right? And he had the, the knack of putting his foot in his mouth. But, I mean, this is, 
This is Peter. If I'm, if I'm thinking about anyone who's committed to Christ, I'm thinking Peter. If I'm in the room with the 12 and they're asking who's most committed, Peter rises to the top of the list in my mind. He was part of the inner circle, wasn't he? He was with the, the three that were closest to Jesus. What's happening here? How, how, can, how could Peter fall? How could any Christian fall? How do people that we assume are godly, how, how do they fall? Why do pastors get caught up in immorality? Why do we know Christians that seem so committed that have fallen into some deep pit of sin? I think we can learn here from what Jesus is going to say about how that happens. I think in Peter's life, let's just think about two things. This isn't everything, but here's two factors that are still active today. The first is Satan. It's very clear. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. The enemy is working hard. He's working hard in these final days of Jesus' life, isn't he? He's pulling Judas away, and now he wants to shake Peter. He wants to sift him like wheat. And not just Peter, the, the you there. Okay, so it says Satan demanded to have you. That's a plural you, meaning y'all, right? He wants to have all y'all disciples. Satan demanded to have y'all that you might that he might sift you all like wheat. Every single one of you, not just Peter. It's it's a it's a do you say it, a sieve? Is that how you say it? So or maybe you've played with it in the sandbox. It's it's a little tray that has the sand goes through and separates out certain things. That's what they would use to separate the wheat and the and the chaff. And Satan wants to separate Peter and the other disciples from each other. He wants to separate them from Christ. That's Remember, that's what he does with Judas. He wants to pull him away from closeness to Jesus and closeness to Christ. He wants to crush the faith of the disciples. Satan is a strong force, and Satan is a, and demonic forces, that's what they want to do. They want to sift the church like wheat. They want to separate us from one another, separate us from Christ. Satan wants to crush our faith and pull us away from Jesus. He wants to split us apart. He wants us to be a divided church because then we're powerless. He wants us to be a church that's not relying on Christ because then we are powerless. So Satan is a factor. And I think self-confidence is the other factor that's going on here. What's Peter say in verse 33? Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I think I admire his zeal. But I think that part of what's going on here is that Peter's saying, I would never do this. I'm Peter. I'm the rock, Jesus. I'm not going to do that. He has a trust in his own ability to stay true to Jesus. That's a recipe for failure, isn't it? For all of us, when I think I can do it on my own, when I think I'm tough and resilient, that I can stand in my own strength, I was thinking about the Rich Mullins song this week where he says, we are not as strong as we think we are. <laughs> and that's so true. We are not as strong as we think we are. And if you and I, if we're trusting in our own strength, we will fail and we will fall every time. We need each other. I think that's implicit in this passage. It's not a clear teaching, but let's just say that as a church. We need one another. We need to say things like, I need your help. I can't do this by myself. Those are hard words for some of us to say, aren't they? I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me. We need each other, but more than anything, we need Jesus. 
you know, you, you and I, we cannot fight Satan on our own. And I feel like that's kind of what Peter's saying. Satan wanted to sift you like wheat. And Peter says, Satan, I'm going to prison with you, Jesus. I'm willing to die for you. He doesn't realize how much he needs Christ. We need Christ. Without him, we will ultimately fail. And that's why I think it's so encouraging to look at verse 32. What does Jesus say? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I've prayed for you, Peter. And I have confidence that you, in fact, will turn again. And when you turn again, you're not just going to turn, but you're going to be able to help your brothers. You're going to go down into this valley of complete humiliation. How humiliated was Peter? I mean, he said these words and everyone heard him. And everyone saw him fall. And everyone had to try to watch him climb back to the top. And he did, and he was able to encourage and strengthen his brothers. Take a step back. Behold the power of Jesus. He is in control. Satan demands, it says. Satan demanded to have you. (laughs) He demanded to have you. But no one can, can combat the prayers of Jesus. One prayer of Jesus tells Satan how far he can go, draws the line in the sand and says, you can come this far, Satan, and no further. We do not need to fear Satan ultimately because he, his power is limited by God. He's like a dog on a chain, an unbreakable chain. And Jesus determines how far that dog's allowed to go. And he can say, this far and no further. Jesus is there. Jesus not only holds back Satan, but Jesus strengthens us. If we're self-confident, we will fall, but Jesus can give us strength. He can give us the strength to walk through this valley of humiliation. He can ordain to restore us, and not just restore us, but to use us out of that restoration. God is with us. Isn't that the, the continual promise of Scripture? The Lord is with you. He's our good shepherd. He's our helper. He's a strong tower. Our family read Psalm 3 yesterday. You, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. That's who God is to us. Behold the power of Jesus and behold the power of prayer. Jesus doesn't just say, Satan desired to sift you like wheat, but I told him no. He says, I prayed for you, Peter. Jesus, the Son of God, prays to protect Peter. That's the prayer of Jesus, yeah, but when we pray, how do we pray? In Jesus' name. In the strength of Jesus. You know, prayer can preserve us in the midst when we feel like Satan is attacking or going to drag us down. Satan can, or the prayer preserves us. I think there's people we know, and it looks like Satan wants to sift them like wheat. And we see that. We see it happen. That they're followers of Christ and they are falling away. And we feel totally helpless. And we want to help. We want to say something. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to help. And sometimes we neglect to pray. To pause and to, and to plead with God that their faith would not fail. That, that Satan himself would not have the final word in their lives. That they would come out on the other side of that with the ability to strengthen their brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's not despair. God has given us the gift of prayer. The power of Jesus and the the power of, of prayer. On our, on our own, if we're fighting Satan, if we're fighting self, we will always fall. We're going to fall, period. But Jesus is praying for us. The Spirit is in us. We can come out on the other side and be used for His glory. Now, 
We didn't look at verses 28 through 30 because I'm struck by their positioning here, okay? Let's think about this. You've got the dispute of the disciples about who's the greatest. Then you've got the prediction of, of Peter's denial. And what does Jesus say in verse 28? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. What, doesn't that seem totally out of place? Because they're not. <laughs> they're arguing about who's the greatest and Peter's going to not deny Christ. Were the disciples completely faithful? No. But had they stayed with Jesus through many trials? Yep. They, they had. They, they were not perfect. And I love that Jesus encourages them. He, he, he comes and he says, you have stayed faithful to me. And he says, in light of that, in light of walking with me through humility, through leaving your homes and your families, for standing with me when everyone else was standing against me, in light of that, what's going to happen? I'm going to give you a kingdom, he says. The Father gave me a kingdom, and as he gave it to me, I'm going to give it to you. And there's two things he says there. He says, you're going to, you're going to eat at the table with me. You're going to eat and drink at my table. I'm telling you, Luke loves feasts. He keeps talking about them, doesn't he? Parties all over the place. You're going to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that interesting? The two things that we talked about, so we talked about this desire for authority and the desire to be served. Jesus says, if you walk with me, if you stay humble, what am I going to give you? You're going to sit at my table and eat and drink, and you'll be given authority. Authority that you couldn't even imagine to have here on earth. Brothers and sisters, are we perfectly faithful? No, not at all. We are very much like the disciples. But by God's strength, have you been faithful? Have you stood with Christ in trials and in difficulty? Yes. I know that of so many of you. We're not perfect. Man, I know all the ways I've failed, okay? And if you think you know the ways I've failed, I know way more than you know. And you know more about the ways that you've failed than I know about the ways that you've failed. We all know that. But let me encourage you. If you're in Christ, truly in Christ, then you have stayed with him in trials. You have walked through humility. I know that is true. I know that is true for so many of you and for all who are true children of God. You've cared for, for, for those. You've, you've loved people. You've loved aging parents selflessly. You have raised and you are raising children. That's humbling, <laughs> isn't it? You have, you have quietly worked behind the scenes at this church. You've given sacrificially to this church. I know that. You've fed the hungry. And Jesus sees all this. He, he could see the faithfulness of the disciples. And he sees your faithfulness. And as Jesus works in us to keep us faithful through difficulty, what does he say? He says, it's hard right now. But if you stay faithful with me, what will happen? 
you'll be exalted. You will sit at my table. And you will rule. You will have authority. We will eat at the table with Jesus. We will reign with him as children of the king, as brothers and sisters with Christ. We will know that as we walk through difficulty. So there's a call here, isn't there, to humble ourselves. Man, we need to be reminded of that, to not trust ourselves, to to hope in Christ. But I think there's an encouragement here, isn't there? An encouragement that that you are. Be encouraged that God, there are evidences of God's grace. The, The path to the peaks of greatness always leads through the valley of humility every single time. And so that's where we're going. But we're following Jesus, right? We're not, we're not going by ourselves. And we're not going on a path that he's pointing to and saying, go here. He's saying, come follow me. Because Jesus humbled himself more than any man ever. He became a man. became a servant. Humiliating death that he went through was humbling. And God has therefore exalted him. And so let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus through the path that, that doesn't look to hold on to worldly authority or be served by others but the path that lays aside our rights and serves others. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Let's follow Jesus through humiliation. Let's follow Jesus in death to ourselves so we can reflect him in this world and so that one day we're marching towards a kingdom, aren't we? We're heading there. Let's stay faithful. And Jesus is taking us to the place where we will know what true greatness and true glory is. He will be given crowns. We will be given authority. And we'll lay it all at the feet of Jesus. The path to the peaks of greatness leads through the valley of humiliation. So let's let's walk with Christ. Let's go through the valley for his glory and let's do it in the strength that he gives us every day. Let's take a moment of, of silence, reflect on God's word, and then I'd like to pray for us. But let's just take a moment to allow his word to Speak to us. Father, the 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 path of self-exaltation talking about me and serving myself it's an easy one and following you through humility is difficult but we know that that's where true joy is would fill us with desire Lord we want to have zeal like Peter be willing to go anywhere with you Lord but we want to recognize that we can't do it on our own and we need you to strengthen our faith Keep our faith from failing, Jesus. Pray for us. Keep us holding on to you. Lord, help us to, to walk this path together, that we're not on it by ourselves. We are, we're in this together. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to serve one another. To outdo one another in serving. Lord, help us not to grow weary in well-doing. Lord, and you have done great things through us. We thank you for it. We give all the glory to you. Thank you that you have kept us faithful. 
We pray that you would continue to keep us faithful. We give all the praise to you, Father. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen.